Once again, terrestrials and others, for another episode of the IMMP podcast for your dose of nostalgia, media criticism, and misuse of parental authority. Uh, my name is Matthew Porter. For your convenience, I have been programmed to respond to the name Ian Porter. <laughs> I'm his dad. He's my son, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> and I make him watch television. Oh, this is... I, I This one I was excited for. Because I kind of knew it had to come at some point. We had to get to this one. We had to get to this one. It is... I don't want to say quintessential, that doesn't sound right, but it is... It hits a bunch of our wheelhouses in a weird way. In terms of my TV upbringing, it was very fundamental. This is another one of those shows that was a little before my time, and yet I I watched the heck out of this when it was syndicated and shown you know, five nights a week. That uh, you know, after after I got home from school, usually after doing my homework, I would watch uh, an episode of this show, and it um, it had a bit pretty big influence in that way. Hmm. <sighs> yeah, yeah, I can understand that. I mean, it's definitely it's got all the pieces there. It's it's got the the sci-fi elements. It's got the the interaction of character dynamic elements, and it even has a. A, a good tension hook regularly, although I'm betting that got undermined if you're watching in syndication. It was a bit, yeah. The what were the weekly cliffhangers turned into you know, daily cliffhangers, and you know I don't even remember the cliffhangers that well because I don't know that they showed those ending cliffhanger bits, and I don't know that they showed these episodes in order. Oh, that's uh, a little. That would very. Just... That would very much change the show, right? And now, we, we haven't even mentioned what show we're talking about yet, and in some ways it's funny to call this one show, because over the course of its three-year run, it was really several different shows. Even just in the, the, the first season that we watched, it changed a number of times. Are, you mean to tell me that this show, instead of following a clear and obvious direction, it kind of went from area to area without an idea of where it was to begin with. One could even call it lost in terms of its own direction in that sense. That's right. We're talking I... about the 2004 TV series Lost. Uh, no. <laughs> no, we're, no, we're not. <laughs> we're talking about something far, far before that. <laughs> I think I broke Ian again. Oh, yes, you did there. I did not expect that twist. No, that's that would be that would have been far outside of our uh, our, our time boundaries, but we are talking about the TV show Lost in Space, the original TV show Lost in Space from the nineteen sixties. Ah, uh, in glorious black and white, at least for season one. Right, and that's another one of the many ways in which this show changed a lot. Is it had a season in in black and white, and then it had two seasons in color, which I really didn't know because when I was a kid, I think I was watching it on a black and white TV most of the time. Okay, so it was more it was it was actually more consistent for you in that sense. A bit, yeah. It and wasn't we all... until much later I got to see it on color TVs. I was always watching it on our our second TV, 
a little portable thing. And for this episode, we only watched season one because season one is 30 episodes long. Yes, they cranked out a lot of television per season back then. So yeah, when we look at a season, I look at that and I say this should be marked as two seasons. So it's a three season show that is possibly more five or six, depending on how you slice it. This is some big servings of cake. (laughs) Yeah. So in case you don't know, the basic premise of Lost in Space is, and I'll give the basic premise because that doesn't change that much over the different approaches that it took, even through this TV series. There's the Robinson family. Well, on the nose. John Robinson, his wife Maureen Robinson, their kids, Judy, Penny, and Will Robinson, are going to be the first family to colonize space. And they're on their way to Alpha Centauri. And they get lost. Adventure ensues. And and there's two more members of the... Or there's more members of the cast than just that, but... Right. What I just su- described is the only parts that are consistent through everything we saw, though. Yeah. It's supposed to be this, this family dynamic through space. And then they add in the robot that helps the family that came... That I guess came with the ship? I, I don't know. Well, I want to back up a little bit, though, because okay. we found that this uh, this was on Hulu, oh, yeah. so I thought, yeah, we need to watch this uh, because it was so important to me when I was a kid, and we started watching it. We turned on what was listed on Hulu as the first episode, and we start watching this thing that I had never seen before, and it was this parallel world, like, what on earth is this? It looks like Lost in Space. It's got some of the same actors as in Lost in Space, but but what what is this Gemini 12 spaceship they're talking about? Where's the Jupiter 2? Where's where's the rest of the cast? Uh what is this with the the the, the meteor shower and and it turns out that what Hulu had listed as the first episode was actually an unaired pilot. It wasn't aired until like decades later on some special thing on the sci-fi channel talk about an episode of a tv show from an alternate reality like this is that that first episode of what we watched there was the first episode of a lost in space from a dimension that is like slightly off from our own and i am so intrigued by that because in some ways getting that set up played out differently at the beginning Change the base tone for the rest of what we watched for me. It did. It, uh, you, you, you alluded to two other characters who show up later. And you're right. There's the robot and there's Dr. Zachary Smith, who are nowhere to be seen in this unaired pilot that we watched. And those become such a key part of the way the show is playing out in the later episodes that I don't know what the show would have done without them. I mean, it had them the the this this unaired pilot had them what set up on a planet that wasn't where they were going but they were doing laundry and then they wound up fighting a cyclops i mean it is much more sinbad adventure movie in tv show form space wise than it is what i now know to be lost in space that's very true. And you know, the series, the inspiration for the series came from a, a comic earlier in the 60s called The Space Family Robinson. And there, of course, the, the, the inspiration is from the classic Swiss Family Robinson. 
the family is marooned on an island and has to, you know, kind of build a life for themselves in this remote wilderness where they just have to rely on their knowledge and one another. And that's very much what the, I always knew that there was some influence from the Swiss family Robinson on Lost in Space. I mean, they're named Robinson. Robinson. Yeah. But it was very much a survival adventure, serious show in that unaired pilot where they, you know, they're knocked off course by a, a meteor shower. They're not sure where they are. They, they're asking, could we be on Mars? I mean, we're the one they eventually do wind up on a, a planet. And they kind of settle in and start domesticating local livestock and growing food and exploring and meeting giant cyclopses who try to kill them and just realizing the weather is going to try to kill them. So they have to go off on a, a long distance journey in their really cool tracked vehicle, the chariot. But it's very much a, a serious adventure survival show, which is not what the, the show turned into later. No. I mean, it's got a bunch of potential in there. It's got a lot of story that could be told but i simultaneously don't know if it was prepared to tell that story based on what we saw it attempt to do in that pilot or if it was the right time to tell the story it had the potential to tell in terms of what it gave us if that makes any sense i think so i the show we and it, it this is a little bit i don't know if it's chicken or the egg the show we see later is what i'd expect for the time period of TV it was on. Mm -hmm. And that means I can't tell, is that because it helped part of the zeitgeist that made that what the TV at the time was like? Or does that mean that if it tried to be what it was in the pilot, it would be going too against the flow or too back and not keeping up with what was popular in a way to get in trouble? I am not entirely sure I followed you there, but... Okay, gonna, I'll, I'll, I'll trust the, the fact that our <laughs> listeners may have. If you need, if if anyone needs a play-by-play, -play, I'm happy to explain yeah, via Twitter. Might, might need an illustration to, to, at least I might you need to draw me a picture. But I do have a giant pack of sticky notes upstairs. I'm talking like the wall <laughs> stick size. So you mentioned that, like when this this when this was made, it was kind of to me. It's 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 a weird combination in that in some ways it reminds me of tv shows that i've seen from a decade earlier in that it's this well it's in black and white for the first season and it's this very wholesome family dynamic that they're showing and that almost seems more like a 50s kind of tv show and yet the production values black and white notwithstanding the special effects and the model work and some of the the interesting visual effects with compositing moving actors in the in, in the the windows of the models and things like that, very uh, cutting edge for their time. Yeah, there's not no matter when it is in this show. I never looked at it and thought it looked cheesy. I actually looked at it and thought this is impressive. There is something dedicated about how it's being built. There is focus on it. They put up your know, panels of lights and buttons, and there was a couple of things where I said, "Really." That's that's the thing you're putting there? I mean, I think their gravity machine was like, it looked like one of those disco ball light things that's supposed to have the colored circles on it. Those <laughs> light up the ceiling and such. With like, I don't know, two baguettes strapped to it or something. But the fact that all of the other panels we see people interacting with are actually, like, at least smoothly enough designed 
and the actors interact with them with such confidence, I never then questioned even the things that might have been silly because it had enough baseline. No, no, okay. All of this has a purpose, and I can trust that it does because the bits we see close enough are actually shown to. And I, I liked that. It had, it had a tactility. It did, and it was, being of its time, everything seemed very analog, even the fact that there were computers and, and things. Everything was dials and switches and knobs. And, and the sets were pretty remarkable. And for anything you might say about this show, one thing you can't say about it is that it's low budget. This was an expensive show for its time. The pilot, the unaired pilot, cost uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars. I think I've seen that it was the equivalent of over $2 million for that episode in, t- in today's money. Dang. And, that is... and you can see it all on the screen. There's some impressive sets, impressive effects uh, that the opening and um, the opening shot of the control center where the, the Jupiter 2 or in the unaired pilot, the Gemini 12 spacecraft is about to take off. It's really, really impressive. This is like movie level for its time, movie level sets and effects and the like. In terms of the sets and effects, I was getting Space 1999 flashback. There was something about the the large control room they had, some of the the angular design elements. Yeah, and the two-tier space. The two-tiered space and such. It was all very much in there. And I think that this might have been part of what inspired some of that design aspect there, perhaps. Yeah, it, it might. I think it did have some influence on uh, on other science fiction TV shows. And we call this pilot unaired, but it was aired in chunks because they sliced up the that original pilot and used scenes from it in other episodes to fill out. So they got their money's worth when they had it, even if they didn't use that original version. That's true. All the, especially the most expensive sequences and scenes from that unaired pilot, they did reuse. Those mission control shots that we talked about, they reused as many of those, as much of that as possible. Scenes of Professor John Robinson, the patriarch of this family, uh, flying around in a jetpack on this on an alien world. They reused those scenes. Again, really, really impressively done. Yeah. Uh, scenes of the chariot driving across country and driving across the, the sea and getting stuck in a whirlpool. I know they reused a lot of those shots. So you're right. All the 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 shots where they spent the most money they reused in later episodes when they could and it's weird because it makes me wonder how much of that was these are good generic shots and i wonder if there were episodes later that were written where we still have this much footage of this someone throw them at this again oh i wouldn't be surprised if uh if they wrote things around this uh, action uh, footage that they already had Oh, yeah. Especially because there was more of this show from our research that was a little, I don't want to call it ad hoc, but there was, especially, they they changed what it was on the fly because of certain actors and people, and that, I think, affected the show. You're right, and that's kind of two or three versions of the show down the line, in my mind, even though it's all in this first season. Because that unaired pilot was very much a serious science fiction adventure survival thing. And in the the last shot of that pilot, there are aliens, humanoid aliens wearing clothes. Not not the giant cyclops they had to fight earlier in the episode, but these 
uh, advanced-looking aliens peering at them uh, from uh, a, a short distance on this alien world where they're they've uh, they're establishing their homestead. It makes you wonder where that story would have gone. But what they did next, what what made it into the the pilot that really kicked off the show as it then started on television, had a very different initial setup. It was still the Robinson family, still the same people in the Robinson family. They're going to be the first family to uh, to colonize space, and they're on their way to Alpha Centauri in now the Jupiter 2. I think they might, might have slightly redesigned parts of the Jupiter 2. It was now a bigger and two-level spaceship, very flying saucer kind of spaceship. But now, it wasn't just a meteor storm that threw them off course. It was sabotage. Because out from the, because as they're getting ready, out from one of the side panels slides the Lazy Boy Recliner secret hideaway part, <laughs> you know, compartment of Doctor Smith, Colonel Smith. As Colonel we Smith. see him in the that opening, he's one. He's a military doctor who's helping prepare the family for the uh, for this journey, but he's working for some foreign entity. And we have we get a the message like from the president at some point about how there are there are other countries who are also looking to colonize space and they wouldn't stop uh, at sabotage to get an advantage over over the United States. And sure enough, Zachary Smith is apparently a a traitor in our midst, ready to sabotage the Jupiter Two and the Robinson family with one character. They go from the folly of man against nature, and the will put this family into mortal peril. To this one jerk wrecked it for the rest of us, <laughs> and that definitely changes it because Doctor Smith, Doctor Zachary Smith, is a character, and I mean that not in a on the script he's written as someone someone plays. I mean he is a character. This is a a. An an action upon the entire status of this world that makes it a little silly and a little more intense simultaneously. Well, he's a very sinister character in those first few episodes where he appears. Oh yeah, and he's uh, the the main way that he is uh, sabotaging the Jupiter too is he is tampering with the environmental control robot. Now, as the series goes on, he seems kind of like a pretty all-purpose robot, but apparently he was supposed to go out and do the initial scouting exploration of the planet that they were headed towards to make sure it was safe for them to come out of the ship and all that. But Dr. Smith reprograms him to destroy the guidance system and destroy the life support system and essentially make it impossible for them to survive and or get where they're going. And that's his plan, but he doesn't managed to get out of the ship in time. So he is stuck on the ship as an unintentional stowaway as they lift off with this robot that he has programmed to destroy things. And the robot's the best character. I've got to say it. The robot is an amazing character, and I can't (laughs) tell if it's supposed to be that he is programmed this way from the beginning or the tampering does it to him, but he has so much sass. And I love it. Everyone knows the robot as just the character that says, Danger Will Robinson. And that is not 
anything of what he is. He is kind of the the quipping added group to this. He is he is almost the rock to counterbalance the fact that they've thrown Smith into this whole thing, and it is delightful. So in all of this, we've got a mechanized Alice that is somehow all the better. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I, I think in a, in a fight, the two of them would have a brilliant bout. The robot would just eke out a victory over Alice. Why am I imagining now a like a poker night that includes Alice from the Brady Bunch, the robot from Lost in Space, and uh, Rosie from the Jetsons, which we haven't watched together yet. It has to be run at Jeeves's house. <laughs> so yeah, the robot is is a terrific character, and uh, but Doctor Smith is is a scary, sinister bad guy in these first few episodes, played by Jonathan Harris, whose whose range becomes apparent as you watch him through this uh, this whole series. But for the first few episodes of what aired, he he's the saboteur who's threatening the lives of the. Um, of the Robinsons and the entire space colonization program, which is important apparently because I think Earth is getting overpopulated or something. And then once he's the stowaway, he is focused on getting himself back to Earth at any cost, and he doesn't really care about saving the lives of anybody else on the ship as long as he can get home. Eventually, after a few stories in which they meet other alien uh, spacecraft. Like, there's one in which there's the pilot in which they kind of go off off course. Oh, and there's I mentioned pilot. There's one other character we didn't mention. Uh, honestly, though... Major Don West, who is not a member of the Robinson family, but he's the pilot um, who is kind of assigned to them. It's like, John Robinson is the captain, but Don West is the pilot. And... Uh, he's also on his way to becoming son-in-law because he and the oldest daughter, Judy, have a thing. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I gotta, I'm, I'm sorry to say, John West was a little boring. Oh, I don't know. I think Don is supposed to be the- Don West. Um, he's supposed to be the, the, the action hero, and John Robinson is supposed to be the, the, the thoughtful, guiding male figure. But yeah, there's not- they're not very distinct from one another in that sense, are they? There's the problem with the uh, the the rough and tumble character, or the head of security, or whoever you want. Where whenever the bad guy shows up, they need to throw this guy against a ro- <laughs> the nearest rock to prove that they're threatening. And I feel like I don't know if they showed that enough, but I was already just kind of desensitized to the fact that that was going to happen to him, and that, like. <laughs> I didn't expect him to actually be able to land his first punch each time, and that 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 just made him less interesting because yeah. that was his personality trait, at least for certain episodes. Yeah, he's very quick to go into a fight. He wasn't always particularly effective once he was there. Yeah, but he wasn't. Uh, he didn't shrink from going into a fight. But they did show um, after that initial um, episode, they find a derelict spaceship and they investigate that and then they find some dangerous aliens on board with like shaggy spidery creatures with electrical powers and they get back in there jupiter 2 and they escape just in time yeah there there's an immediate meeting of aliens and a distinct lack of 
as much surprise as I expected for the existence of aliens. Right, they just seem very accepting of, oh yeah, there's alien life capable of building spaceships, as if that's not something that's new to to people in uh, in 1997. By the way, that's when they take off. They take off in 1997. Oh my goodness. Was... They got out just before the, the moon blew up, two years later. <laughs> I'm just I'm just reeling at the fact that I was in in theory five. That's a whole mess. Oh boy. Yeah, the first time you saw any of Lost in Space was I think you when you were five, and Sci Fi Channel had a, a special presentation of several episodes to commemorate the launch of the Jupiter Two in nineteen ninety seven. I'm not at all surprised you don't remember this, but uh, I'm pretty sure you saw some of it then. I don't know if I remember it directly, but I think that might have messed with me because that's making some that's making some things click <laughs> into place about like what I would pick up certain toys and assume them to be and some of the stories I would try to tell. <laughs> I think I was trying to like recreate what I'd seen in that sense and like like no, there's a robot. There has to be a robot. Like that might be part of it. That might be. Oh boy, that that says so much more about me than I expected. So after a little bit of um, of adventure in space with this derelict alien ship and all that, they land on a planet, not the planet near Alpha Centauri that they uh, they were aiming for. Oh, and they have no idea where they are, because during, I forget whether it was during the asteroid storm, which still happened, or it was when the robot was trying to carry out its sabotage programming and destroy the ship, and was stopped just in time by Dr. Smith. Wasn't it when the fire extinguisher was thrown at the console? That might have been it. I think that was when it... They went into hyperdrive for just a few seconds, but that was enough that if they were in hyperdrive with no course plotted, they have no idea where they are and how far they went. In what direction. Which is, I think, yeah, that's kind of a cool trope. Yeah, I mean, that at least gives a... I mean... Your your title is Lost in Space. You have to, of course, get lost in space. But space is full of the things we would use to figure out our way around stuff regularly on Earth. It's full of the stars. In <laughs> fact, if you've got any sort of mapping, space is simultaneously the easiest and the hardest thing to be lost in, depending on where you are. So they very clearly just like, a race you cannot know anything about where you are to start in a very loose sci-fi kind of way. Right. You have no frame of reference, so the fact that you can see a lot of stars does not help you at all. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's not that I would expect this show to keep its the, the concept of star navigation very clear, because I'm going to be very honest, this show has a high neutron factor. Have have we ever talked about the neutron factor on this podcast before? I don't think we've explained the neutron factor. We have to talk about the neutron factor because that's going to be important, I think, time after time uh, as we talk about science fiction movies and TV shows. The neutron factor is a is part of the Porter family uh, vocabulary, and it traces itself back to the movie This Island Earth. This island Earth can be yours if the price is right. Thank you, <laughs> MST3K, on that one, but still. In this island Earth, when someone is being given the uh, the tour of the laboratory, is in this new institute where he's gotten the scientist has gotten a job, 
he's introduced to the cat, kind of the laboratory mascot cat. And the scientist that he's, who's giving him the tour tells him, this is our cat. We call him Neutron because he's so positive. And if that didn't hurt as a sentence, you don't know the science. <laughs> I so, so wish I could believe that was meant as a joke and a bit of irony. And of course, we're wrong, but neutrons aren't positive. They're neutral. It's, it's protons are positive. If you want to say that he's positive, call him proton. If he's got a bad attitude, call him uh, uh, electron. Negative. But that 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 line just rang so loud and clear when I saw this island Earth when I was a kid. We call him Neutron because he's so positive. And so I've grown up now with the fact that if a show like gets part way with its science and then doesn't understand it to follow through, if it says if it like says, oh, oh, the planet stopped turning, so the gravity's off and everyone starts floating away, if it does that sort of not knowing what it's talking about, its neutron factor starts rising. I think the, uh, a, the, the calibration of a neutron factor has to be the combination of wanting to be a script that wants to be very, very scientific. So it uses scientific terminology, it uses the names of particles or other scientific ideas, and uses terms that it knows, oh, these are scientific. And it gets what they mean completely wrong or uses them completely out of context and obviously they had no idea what they were talking about they thumbed through a book and found these technical terms and used them that combination of trying to be really detailed and scientific and getting it absolutely incorrect is what constitutes a high neutron factor and this is a term that you know, mrs darling wife and i have used for for years and years long before your time ian describing movies as having a high neutron factor, or, you know, it was in danger of a rising neutron factor, but then they kind of pulled it back. And yeah, uh, Lost in Space has a very, very high neutron factor. Especially at the beginning. At the beginning, when it's trying to be a survival show, it attempts to explain stuff in order to give weight and importance to the survival aspect, and it just undercuts itself by not knowing it. Well, some of the astronomy and, and, and astrophysics, it, it, it uh, commits what is a, a horrible peeve of mine, which is not understanding the difference between interplanetary, interstellar, intergalactic. All of these are very important terms, like, but it's like they use these space terms interchangeably. And, oh, I hate that. They got me on my, my weird pet peeve as well. That any time I I I can't stand it when things arbitrary describe things with different speeds, and they have so many <laughs> things that are moving like near the speed of light, just to be dramatic. And I'm like, so it's near infinitely heavy. Everyone here is dead from gravitation. Like there is so much that messes with me there too. Yeah, the the in some ways the unaired pilot was worse about uh, about a lot of those. They were going to Alpha Centauri. Which is, I think, around four and a half light years away. They were traveling near the speed of light, and they were going to be in frozen, suspended animation for the entirety of their 98 year trip. 
Like they're taking the long way to yeah. Alpha Centauri if it's going to take them 98 years at anything approaching light speed. You're, sim- you're going too fast, or you're not going fast enough. Is, is Waze trying to reroute them around traffic or something? I mean, why is it taking you that long? Recalculating, Will Robinson. Recalculating. So eventually, a few episodes in, after some adventures in space... Oh, speaking of Neutron Factor, one of the perils in space, in addition to the meteor asteroid storm, meteor storm, whatever they called it, was there was a comet approaching them. Oh, yes, the comet. <laughs> and the problem was that the comet was coming very close to them. First of all, we don't know where they were, but there was a comet coming close to them. And as Major West pointed out, it doesn't matter if the comet hits us, because if it got within 5,000 miles, its incredible heat would broil us to death. Um. Well, I mean, putting aside the fact that it, in space, 5,000 miles is a pretty darn near miss. But, um, yeah, comets aren't especially hot. Yeah, that's like the entire opposite of the point of them in some ways. These are giant snowballs. How is it hot? Is it radioactive? Radioactive, at least, is something, but that's yeah. not heat. No, they say. were... It, I mean, technical. Yeah, and it did come really close, and you see them, like, succumbing to, to the, the effects of just extreme heat. It's bowing the door because it's too hot so they can't oh, get in, right. which also is like, the door, it has controls on the outside, and they had to, like, reach in and hit the button to close it, and I'm like, like, reach outside the spaceship, hit the button to close the door. That's like, why? Why are you doing the trick where you hop over the little laser line of your garage door <laughs> in your spaceship? This is not supposed to be something you do. Yeah, I mean, a, a building service elevator in the 1950s would not have passed inspection with those controls. But they, they do survive the comet. Later on, there's someone who is marveling at, and he's flying through space and marveling that there's a Nova coming by. Again, okay, you know Nova is kind of a space term. You have obviously no idea what it means. But <laughs> it's being brought to him by by viewers like you. It's it's not the type we're thinking. <laughs> but eventually, after some of their space adventures, they get to a planet, and this is where they start reusing some of that footage from the unaired pilot. They're on this planet, and they we skip ahead quite a ways in John Robinson's diary, which uh, or journal, which we we see him writing in. We hear his voice over. They're domesticating animals, and they're kind of setting up a homestead and they're drilling for fuel or ore that they can refine into fuel so they can refuel the Jupiter 2 and possibly I guess try to figure out where they are and get home but they spend the rest of the entire season 1 on this planet they're not as lost as they should be they have a place to go back to this it was really really weird to me because all of the the dramatic things come to them. And that's not what I expected this to be. The adventure portion kind of fades away. You know, I joked about the 19, excuse me, I joked about the 2004 um, uh, TV series Lost, but and maybe there are more similarities than I, than I knew when I made that joke. Yeah. I mean, They're it's- in this place and weird things come to them. I- including, if I can list off some of the things we've watched them face in our episodes, uh, 
mysterious ghosts and invisible creatures. Yeah. Uh, at least one instance of, like, killer plants in a jungle kind of thing. Yeah, that sounds right. Multiple instances of abandoned, dangerous technology. Right. And multiple times of don't go into the cave. That's a bad way to die. Right. This kind of does fit the lost show. (laughs) This is actually kind of more similar to that. I don't know how I feel about that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's going to require some more thought. It is kind of remarkable that, conveniently, a monster of the week or a problem of the week just finds them on this uncharted planet, which is apparently a major thoroughfare because of all the different alien species that happen to stop there just to mess with the Robinsons, apparently. It, like, they, they set up their little homestead, but they don't realize that if they were ju- just to, like, drive a day and a half south, they'd hit, like, a metropolitan city, I guess. Because this is... Really, not that far away from where everyone is. <laughs> and, you know, it's not just aliens who happen by. They also meet an Earth guy, or Texan specifically, who's been flying around in space after he kind of got lost um, um, sometime after his launch in the 1980s. And, yeah, he uh, when he's not in his spaceship with his space helmet on, he's wearing a, a cowboy hat. I have expected him to wear the hat on top of the helmet. <laughs> or maybe you have a specially shaped helmet to fit over the hat. <laughs> that could work. This is one of those characters, though, where like the hat is half the character. To, unfortunately, yeah, the hat and lots of folksy, uh, folksy diction. And he's also the guy who they trust way too easily to suggest take our children, bring them back to Earth. It's like, um, yeah, that was uh, that was a weird one. That was a weird one. I mean. Really, the entire story boiled down to a, a, hi there, help me fix my ship? Sure. Take our children. No. Yes. No. Sure. No. What? I'm okay. not, I'm not, go- <laughs> I'm not going to go back to Earth after all. Yeah, exactly. It's like, that was entirely pointless. How did this, how'd this play out this long? And meanwhile, yeah, the, there's, these are like 50 some minute episodes. And there's not always 50-some minutes of story. They are not paced the way we would expect things to be paced today. But that uh, story with um, with the cowboy guy, that was early enough that Dr. Smith was still this sinister, self-serving character in the background. A little bit scary, a little bit unpredictable, and he wanted to... He was trying to arrange for himself to, to somehow be the one to get to go back to Earth um, with uh, with this cowboy. And, of course, that didn't work either. But the the series continues to change, largely driven by Harris and the way he played Dr. Smith. Dr. Smith goes from, uh, like, sleep with a knife, this guy can't be trusted. And he doesn't quite get all the way down to uh, hoodoo levels of silly villain. <laughs> but he actually goes in that trajectory for a while. Right. He he does. And my understanding was that he was not supposed to remain in the series. They put him in to make the initial, um, the, the way that they get lost a little more scary, a little more believable. And then they were somehow going to write him out. Either he was going to die or they were going to find a way to send him back to Earth. I don't know. But uh, Jonathan Harris wanted to keep, wanted to keep this job on the TV show. 
And I, I, depending on which story you read, possibly with some encouragement from the creator of the show, Erwin Allen, um, he started revising his own lines, coming up with some of his own dialogue, and playing it in a broader, campier, more comedic way. And so over a short period of time, Dr. Smith goes from being this sinister saboteur who cares nothing for anybody's life and who is you know, the biggest danger they face is the fact that he's among them, to the point where I sometimes wonder, why wasn't he on the wrong side of an airlock much sooner in this? <laughs> to the point where he is the 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 self-aggrandizing, self-serving, supercilious, but utterly inept comic villain to the point where they're calling him friend. The Robinsons are calling him friend. They don't like him. They get mad at him every day because they give him a job to do and he doesn't do it, but they still don't want to see him killed or taken away by aliens or anything. They've got to save him. Not just because he's another human being, but because they he's he's their friend. He's kind of an uncle to the kids. And it is you just kind of have to go with it because otherwise I'm really thinking you're calling this guy friend and you're putting yourselves in danger for him when he's the guy who has put you and your entire family at risk of their lives, literally took money to try to kill you. Yeah. And now he's your friend and the goofy uncle. I, that's, that's a, that's quite a change. There's something that, uh, there's something about the way his character evolves and the way the family dynamic shifts around him that in my mind, I just can hear, uh, John, John Robinson saying, well, as long as we keep Dr. Smith here to be the karmic sponge of the things that we might run into, we don't have to worry about the fact that we brought a spare daughter just in case. <laughs> and that's also because I'm sorry, as, as, as they all shifts, Penny actually, I think gets less and less important. She actually doesn't appear for almost entire episodes later. Yeah, there are some times like that. In in some ways, though, Penny is instrumental. I have to say Penny is sometimes the Daphne of the group and that her job is to get trapped somewhere or to trust the wrong monster or something. But uh, but yeah, of, of all of the, the kids, she's the one who will just, just be else, someplace else for an episode or two. And maybe that's because yeah, Angela Cartwright had other things she was doing. I don't know. Yeah. She also has a monkey. I don't understand the monkey. Oh, right. Debbie. I don't know if they mentioned this in what they aired, but in the unaired pilot, they talked about the fact that her... And she's like, you know, 13, 14 or something. Her hobby or field of study is zoology. So she's always interested in the alien animals and things that they find. And she adopts this space monkey called Debbie. It's a bloop, because that's like all it says is bloop. But uh, but yeah, she's always hanging out with the space turtles and the space monkeys and things. Oh goodness, that explains so much. Debbie is her Pokemon. Penny's <laughs> a Pokemon trainer. She's off these episodes because she's doing gym challenges or something. I like that. I like that. Okay, yeah, that could work. So they spend the rest of season one on this planet, drilling for fuel, um, making up, making their homestead. And dealing with the monster of the week. And as you've said, Ian, sometimes it's a ghost, sometimes it's an alien, sometimes it's, uh, uh, I don't know, a ghost alien, sometimes it's a, a human from Earth. 
but um sometimes it's a crown sitting on a rock in the middle of the desert that leads to an amazing episode honestly i had to make sure we watched that because that's one of my favorites it's one i remembered so very clearly from when i was a kid as you say there's this crown and of course dr smith sees this jeweled crown he's going to try it on and it summons this delegation of creatures the andronicans who have been looking for a new king, and Dr. Smith will be their king. Well, first it tasers Dr. Smith. Point for crown. Right, they didn't want Smith as their king first, because it didn't like him, but it liked Will, and they wanted Will Robinson, who's like 10 or 11 years old, I think. They wanted Will Robinson to be their king, but he didn't want to go and leave his family to be king somewhere. Dr. Smith would be happy to. Mm -hmm. So then they, they accept Dr. Smith, and he becomes their king, and immediately turns into the exact sort of person you'd expect him to respond to, to the family. You know, saying, oh, I'll be merciful and spare your lives, but you're going to work for me now, and, uh, bring me a grape. Yeah, he's, he's instantly, you know, he makes sure that he is robed in ermine and, uh, carried around in a sedan chair and attended by beautiful women. Then he finds out that these, these nice, uh, tall, blonde Andronicans are not really the people for whom he's going to be king. They're the robots of the guy he is going to be king right. for. The guy he's going to be king for is kind of more like an alien wolfman Jack sort of guy. <laughs> he looks like the, the he looks like the bad guy in a Gillette razor commercial. And he is just like, we don't have enough hair on this costume. Every science fiction TV show has its own go-to method of portraying something as being alien. Some shows that we don't talk about uh, use, like, uh, prosthetic foreheads to show, oh, this is an alien, he's got a wacky forehead, maybe a weird nose. In Lost in Space, it was hair. Lots of weird, patchy facial hair was the indication of an, of a, of an alien, especially a dangerous alien. If your mustache is big enough that they can't tell where the seam is on the rubber mask, we're good. <laughs> that makes sense. So he's going to be um, the uh, the king for these ugly, hairy people, the Andronicans. And um, that doesn't mean he's going to get to rule. No, they're going to have a festival. Yes, he will be crowned. Great big festival. Everybody's going to be happy. Drink glug. Make Sleemoth. <laughs> Best lines. I have, I have heard those lines as one of these like quotable little bits for all of my life. And I'm so delighted to finally see where it came from, because it is ridiculous in the best way. Yeah, with your uncle and I, when we were kids, um, that was, any time we're talking about a party of any kind, it always involved drink glug, make slimoth. We had no idea what that meant, still don't, but that was a huge part of the celebration, the great festival for the crowning of the new Andronican king. Drink glug, make slimoth. And the problem with being a king of Andronica is that at the end of the festival, you're dead. You are stuffed and mounted because that's what they do to their kings. It's a sacrificial king. And, you know, they don't need a king to be making rules. They need a king to sacrifice so they'll continue to be prosperous. Apparently, they do this every year and they do a really, the the alien assured Smith, they do a great job with the the stuffing and the, the, the preserving. He'll last for 10,000 years in their Hall of Immortal Kings. Uh, he's still not too keen on the idea, though. He kind of made a deal, though, already. Which, I mean, also, yeah, this is another instance of, uh, of a TV show 
sci-fi contract law of like he has made an agreement to be king which was recorded and he is therefore bound by it by to it by like a council or something there's yeah this, or like, like his name was in the goblet of fire or something I'm yeah sure. there's this whole thing going on but it's like no you can't get out of this now and but we can't like just take you away and not give you back to your people so we built an android of you right the uh again because he's their friend and they want to save him john robinson and don west get get out their weapons and they go to the alien spaceship and they demand to get uh zachary smith back and what they get back is the the android replacement which uh, i do like that one of as it was pointed out when we were watching uh i think i think mom pointed out but one of the devices used to build an android is actually the model of the ship that they ran into, like, in episode two, stood on its end in the back of the room. I'm like, well, yeah, once I was playing, it's like, okay, that was clever. I didn't even recognize it at first. Yeah, they reuse a lot of their models and things by using them in different orientations at different scales. And you really got to watch them all in a row like we were to notice that. So this android goes back to the Jupiter 2 with the Robinsons, but he is like Dr. Smith without any of Dr. Smith's flaws. So he is super friendly, super helpful, super industrious. They know something's weird. And eventually there's the, like, which do you want, the real Dr. Smith or the nice Dr. Smith? And they really actually reasonably take a little too long to decide. There is a lot of moments where they're like, do we really need the original back? I guess we do. That's the right thing. But the other one's so much better. And it, in some ways, it's a problem that solves itself because the good doc, fake Dr. Smith is so nice, he sacrifices himself to go back with the Andronicans so that the real Dr. Zachary Smith can uh, can be saved. Which is just an odd... I mean, it... That ending felt a little, like, unfulfilling. I want to see the response from the Andronicans when they realized they were handed back their own robot. <laughs> but I guess that it makes sense that that's when the episode ends, but... He could be the beginning of a new line of robot kings, and nobody has to get sacrificed anymore. Who knows? That could be awesome. Yep. So you can see how, with this weird setting of there's the family homesteading on a planet while they try to get fuel to leave, and... Monsters and crises find them. They just play this out week after week for 30 episodes in total for that first season. And my goodness, that is a long time. But I also realize the fact that this is designed as a serial. And that's made in part because the end of every episode is really the start of the next. The entire series is shifted. You'll you'll see the setup of the next story at the end of this one. At least you will on these original versions that we're seeing on Hulu. Right. I don't think those were shown that way when I was watching it in syndication, but you're right. You'll see, the a after everything's resolved from this week's episode, you'll see a complete scene, not just a next time on, but a complete scene from the next story until you get to the first cliffhanger. and. Then they cut and say, you know, next week, same time, same channel. And then when you get to that next episode, they'll repeat that entire first scene of the new story again. So it was, it was serialized and it had enough repetition that you were still okay if you missed last week. If, you, if you're seeing this week 
you want to come back next week. If somehow you missed last week, you get everything you need to pick up from here and still watch. I wonder how much running time taking those out of these 30 episodes would would reclaim because that is a large amount of repeated footage that is that is verging on magical girl transformation or zoid deploying uh extra footage time possibly oh so i i see what you're saying so that it means they didn't have to shoot as much original material for any given episode if if there was you know two minutes of repeat Every every time around, that's a good point. And with a, a show that was this expensive to make, that could probably be significant. And uh, and I'm sure that one of the there are probably two reasons why they may have taken them out of syndication. One is you get back all that time for more commercials, and the other is you don't have to worry about showing them in order. But yeah, that's a good point. You uh, you don't have to shoot as much if you're using uh, the same footage twice. The the cliffhangers are, I mean, they're kind of interesting the scenes that lead up don't always fit well into when the first cliffhanger lands i mean i think one of them was them going fishing and then what they actually fought was like just noticed at the end of that right yeah it was really throwaway character not throwaway but maybe character defining stuff as well but you're right it's just that those last few seconds are where you see what's going to be important and that one after the fishing story what do we find there? It's Robbie. Robbie the robot. This is a, uh, I don't know if you can call him a character, actor, whatever you'd call him. Third time in shows that we've watched in the IWMP. Because he shows up in this. He showed up in, didn't he show up in an episode of Columbo? He showed up in an episode of Columbo. And he showed up in an episode of Project UFO. He did. Robbie had a good agent. He showed up in a I lot did. of TV back then. And he plays a... He, this is one of those interesting things, because if you look at him as an actor, he usually played this kind of protagonist role, or at very least, like, secondary. He was a straight-up antagonist in this episode. He was a good villain. He was a really very good villain. Very good, sneaky bad guy. He's, he's showing you some of Robbie's range. Yeah. I want to I see a where are they now of Robbie, the robot. <laughs> and we have yet to see Robbie's debut, which we will at some point. We have yet to, uh, to talk about Forbidden Planet. But yeah, ever they made him for, for Forbidden Planet, and he got a lot of TV work after that. Mm-hmm. But I mean, th- that one's interesting because that one is about the robot and giving the robot so much more personality. And that's, I love it. The robot, he is so much more interactive because he is, he's there getting jealous and then insisting, no, I do not feel jealousy. That is a human emotion. And then like, <laughs> throwing a little fit. Yeah, he tries to stop Will from repairing this old, broken-down robot they find. Correction. Not robot. Robotoid. Excuse me. Robotoid. Robotoid. It, it's, there's almost, it's, there's a little bit of, I'm wondering, is the Robinson's robot racist or something? <laughs> I mean, he's, he's, every time Will calls him the other Robbie, the robot being played by Robbie, for lack of a better term, every time Will ref, ref, refers to him, that one as a robot, the Robinson's robot corrects. He's a robotoid, not a robot. Like, okay, calm down. Seriously. Yeah, that 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 brings up a lot of questions there. <laughs> but um, but yeah, the robot the robotoid is um, uh, super capable, super helpful. Once uh, Will gets him running, super capable, super helpful. Everybody loves him. 
he can do a whole lot more than the Robinson's old robot can, which makes the old robot sad. And the fact that Will is the one who reactivates the robotoid means that this is less of an episode of Danger Will Robinson, and it's more of a Danger, colon, Will Robinson (laughs) episode. Because of the characters that get interaction screen time, Will, I would almost call the main character. He gets a lot of screen time, a lot of action. Yes, and I think that given who this was targeted at, especially as the series went on and it got lighter and more fantasy-like, he was kind of the audience proxy. The guy I know, you know, growing up, watching this when I was about the age of that character, it was, oh, I want to be him in outer space. So I liked the episodes where we got to follow him. I I don't feel like the other characters have it anywhere near as much fleshed out interaction, which means that they they lose something on the family dynamic aspect that they could have set up earlier on. Right. And they started to like feed into that with giving everyone interests and personality trait aspects or from the beginning but as it shifts to this this other show it becomes they become a background to some ways to the the repeated adventures that everyone else winds up in yeah and, and more and more you see everybody else in the way that they play a role in will's life there's his parents who love one another and support him they're his sisters he loves them they're part of this happy family uh but we follow will and we see them through his eyes more and more i think because the series really does get so much lighter. It as and a lot of this I think is driven by the way Harris changed the way he played Dr. Smith. They wrote more and more opportunities for Dr. Smith to get them in trouble, for him to give that wonderful scream that he has as he's realizing the horrible danger he's brought about. And um and very often they're kind of inspired by mythology. I think there's a Minotaur kind of creature they in, encounter at one point, and there's a magic mirror. And um, it really is, in many instances, fantasy in a uh, sci-fi trapping. It is is based on Swiss Family Robinson in basic premise. But when I called it earlier uh, in reference to the Sinbad movies with the claymation creatures and such, it is way more in the vein of those with the go to an island and fight the thing and get the thing and leave. But they're... But instead, they're stationary, and they never get anything new. But they still fight the thing every time. (laughs) Yep. So we've talked about a few of the plots here, but they don't don't change. You've kind of, I think, got the idea of what the the plots are like episode after episode. And it's it's a very comforting series to watch because you kind of know what you're going to get. You don't know what the details are going to be like. You You know what the basic structure is going to be. And um, if, if if you like that, you're going to find it comforting to see that once again. And not everybody who was on the show really appreciated those changes, but uh, but apparently it worked because it did last for three seasons. It changed some more in those later seasons, but we haven't watched beyond that first season for now. Uh, maybe we'll come back to those later and see how the, the series has changed. Uh, beyond that. It does go to color in later seasons, I can say that much. Which might help, because honestly, everything being in gray was a little challenging at times with this. Yeah. And just in terms of the fact that if you don't catch the actors in the right direction on the set, it was really hard to tell the difference between uh, the dad and the, and the pilot 
sometimes I found. Now imagine watching this on a 13-inch black-and-white TV on over-the-air broadcast. Hey. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's going to be a lot harder. So you've had your introduction now to, uh, to Lost in Space. And I am, I'm, I'm glad for it. I mean, I knew it was coming, and I, I've got, I'm going to have to describe later to explain more of why. So we might have to move into the... Are we moving into the final questions? I think so. I think it's time. Okay. So it's a TV show, so the first question is, binge or no binge? I'm going to throw you on this one. I'm going to say no binge. No binge? No binge. As, 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 as much as I enjoyed some of its episodes here... They were a little bit more far, but they were a little farther between than I expected. And the, all the pieces are there. This is sci-fi. This is, uh, it implies at the beginning, interpersonal di- in, uh, like relationship dynamic things that oh, I was interested in. It has that element of adventure and, mis- and mystery. And it had a really cool bad guy at the start, actually. The, the one that the, the Dr. Smith you were scared of, I thought was kind of cool. And while I appreciated the later episodes, it's almost like these ingredients never melted together properly. This is a soup that they put in everything you like, and it doesn't make for a great soup because you can't taste any one of the ingredients. I, if I wanted my fix on some of the things this promised me, I'd go to other places and I'm really glad this exists, but I don't feel the need to, I didn't feel the need to keep going in the way I expected to, because it kept on leaving me with that, that same approachable tone you were describing was a little flat to me. Interesting. I can understand your reasoning behind all of that. I, I'm going to have to say binge though, because, and maybe this is just because I have fond memories of the show and I got to return to those in watching it, but I would say binge, if only for those interactions among Dr. Smith and Will Robinson and the robot. There's so many of these cool interactions. The insults that Dr. Smith comes up with to direct towards the robot are are always so much fun. There is the Shakespeare insult generator. Where's the Dr. Smith insult generator? (laughs) That would be worthwhile. Oh, yeah. Plenty of people who have trouble with computers would get uh, get use out of that. But I, I almost think that uh, you could have a four-panel comic strip about Dr. Smith and Will and the robot. Just going off on their adventures, going fishing, going looking for truffles, which they do in an episode. Going to find scrap metal, whatever, and they get into some goofy adventure, and three panels later you have a joke. That's kind of what so much of this show feels like to me once you get into that groove. It's, it's a comic strip. You've got these over-the-top characters, this kind of ridiculous setting, and it's fun to watch them. Lost in Space, the Four Coma? I hadn't considered that, but <laughs> it, it, it works. So that's the kind of comfort level that I find in watching this. I can, I can appreciate that. Maybe the answer is that you don't binge the start of the series, but you binge the later half. That's maybe, true. Maybe you yeah. have to wait until it gets into its groove. We're describing this as two different series. Maybe we've got two different judgments for two different shows there. That's a good point. And like I said at the beginning, this really is several different shows as it goes along. And I, as I say, I think it turns into even more of them in the next two seasons. And it did just run the three seasons partly because it was so expensive to make. It was very popular, but not popular enough to warrant the, uh, the amount of money it cost. 
And, you know, this was created by Irwin Allen, who is better known to a lot of people for all the disaster movies that he produced in the 70s, the Towering Inferno and Earthquake and other big-time 70s disaster movies. I'm kind of amazed that the planet wasn't more of the enemy then. <laughs> I, think, you know, I, it, I think it was supposed to be. At the beginning, you can kind of see a bit of that in the early episodes, including that unaired pilot. And there are ways in which Dr. Smith and, and the actor portraying Dr. Smith sort of took this away from Irwin Allen. Oh, I'm just realizing we're describing this entire series as it's the story of a, a journey to go in a, to a specific place, hijacked by one man who then wound up coming along for the ride. Right. And the entire series was a thing that set itself out to go in one direction <laughs> and was hijacked in a completely different way by one man who went along for the ride. He actually kind of played Dr. Smith to the show on a meta level. <laughs> I like that. Same guy, same, uh, same pattern. Oh, that's weird. That's and, messing with my head a little. And you know, when this show was being shopped around back around 1965, uh, CBS had to choose or decided it had to choose between this and another sci-fi TV show that was being pitched at the time. Oh. And they chose Irwin Allen's Lost in Space. Irwin Allen had a bit of a TV track record with shows like The Time Tunnel, and they chose to go with um, uh, Lost in Space and said no to another science fiction TV show that also wound up running for three seasons. It's a show that we don't talk about. But oh. CBS could have run that show instead of Lost in Space, and instead that other show went to NBC. And CBS has picked that other one up now. They, they learned from their mistake and went back. That's right, yeah. There's a new version of that other show on CBS All Access. Yeah, so hey. You never know. You never know. So yeah, for, uh, so for Lost in Space, we have a, a no binge from Ian and a binge from me. So our next question is... Revive, reboot, or rest in peace. But it's already been answered, Dad. Yeah, this is one of those, it's complicated by, by history. Are there, there are way, various ways in which this has already been re, reused and reworked. And this is why, from the, at the start, I said I knew we had to get to this one, and I, why I was excited for it. Because not only had I known it was part of the, 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 the cultural history of some things I like now, but I'm a big fan of its revival. That's right, the 1998 movie. No, 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 no. I'm talking about the current... <laughs> no, you're talking about the 70s animated version, right? Oh, of course, yeah. <laughs> I'm talking about the Netflix series of it. Yes. And uh, let's, let's look at those other two that we mentioned here just for a moment. Sure. I don't know much about the animated one, but I take it it's kind of like the show. Yeah, there was an animated version. I don't know how long it lasted or if it aired much at all. I've, I've never seen it. I've heard of it. There were comics, I believe. And then there was the 98 uh, movie. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. The sci-fi show that lasted three seasons got an animated continuation. The parallels increased, Dad. Right. Then okay. It, then it got a motion picture. Then it got revived on television. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. The, the motion picture is... I've, I've never seen all of it. I've seen bits of it. Yeah. Not quite the same thing. And in our terminology, the, the movie qualifies as a reboot, because it's a retelling from the beginning. The old stuff is not canon. And I kind of like the first half of that version. Okay. It sort of falls apart 
I think, but it has some things going for it. It's 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 not to be avoided. It's not pr- probably not really worth seeking out unless you're a completist. There are some things we will go and go find, but I'm not sure that was one of them. Right. Meanwhile, the the Netflix series feels like that parallel world show I talked about came to our world finally. Yes, it has much more in common with that unaired pilot and the first few episodes of the TV series than with the TV series most people know and love, in that it's serious, it's dark, it's full of danger. The planet is the enemy most of the time. Yeah, Dr. Smith is a scary, scary character. And the robot isn't the, the friendly, talkative companion. It is, in fact, the monster? Not of the weak, but of the the questions of it all it's like it's here to fill in for those creatures and characters that walked in various times you know when we watched the uh, the war of the robots episode with robbie guest starring robbie the robot i realized robbie the Ro- that's the robot from the netflix version yes because the robot in the netflix version they didn't bring this robot from earth this is an alien thing that they find and that will gets working and helps repair and make builds a relationship with and is scary and dangerous turns out to have been a reason for for their predicament um and so that's they 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 pull certain details like that from throughout the series but it's very much that that survival drama series that that was originally proposed as lost in space so i was i'm really i really loved that that reboot and i i'm excited for more of it and such so when i got the opportunity to go see where it kind of or the origin to it i was excited for that and it's not that same thing and i i'm a little worried that that's part of what colored my responses to the entirety of the show because i did have this association with what I expected it to be in part reinforced by this other product. But if I strip all of that away, I'm, I'm split and I enjoyed what I watched of it, but I wasn't quite sure if it was what I want to watch. And you're, you're not eager to go back and watch the rest of that first season of lost in space that we didn't get to. No, the fact that you say seasons two and three change again intrigues me and in some ways as a person who enjoys seeing how media evolves how it changes and adapts i'm very fascinated as a case study but i wasn't invested in the story in the way i expected to be and that's fair enough anything that that has enough different versions the way this does everybody's going to have their own favorite version and one that they're going to go back to that makes perfect sense this is what I remembered from when I was a kid. I I enjoyed watching this. Uh, I might go back and watch the rest of it like as, as comfort food viewing, but uh, I'm not going to claim that it's a terrific TV show that everybody has to see. If the a little bit more serious Avengers got sillier when it went from black and white to color, is the a little bit sillier than I expected Lost in Space going to get more (laughs) serious when it goes black and white to color? Not necessarily. I think there may be a few episodes that dip back into that uh, more serious tone, but by and large, 
what you saw later on in the first season is is the way the series continues. Okay. There are other changes, but uh, in terms of tone, I think you've seen a lot of what it has to offer. I can understand that. And, you know, we'll get a chance to see another season of that Netflix series again soon. Yahoo! So, uh, yeah, who knows? It might change some more. Mm-hmm. So I think that wraps us up for um, for our discussion of Lost in Space. I'm glad we got a chance to uh, to talk about this. I'm glad I got a chance to show this to you, Ian. And we'll be back in uh, a few weeks with some more. But in the meantime, Ian, uh, where can people find you? I'm available on Twitter as ItemCrafting, and on YouTube as ItemCrafting, and on Twitch as ItemCraftingLive. I've got a theme going. And you can find me uh, online at MatthewFPorter.com. You can also find me on Twitter at ByMatthewPorter. And you can find the podcast at immproject.com. You'll find our back episodes uh, as well as other information there. And you can also find the podcast on Twitter at immpcast. And we'd love to hear from you on Twitter. And if Twitter is not where you usually chat, or if you want some place where you can talk with us a little bit more directly, we've got a Discord. It's publicly available. We've got links on the Twitter and such. And you can come chat with us there about the shows we watch and about the shows you're currently watching. And if you if you want to support the show, we actually do have a Patreon where you can help continue to fund the uh, the influx of media that we take a look at. And if you go to the highest tiers and such, we even have options to be able to send some of the stuff we're looking at to you. That's right. Everybody uh, who supports us on Patreon gets access to special parts of that Discord. And uh, higher tiers get other bonuses, including uh, additional audio content on Patreon all the way up through membership in the IWMP Movie Club. So thanks again, everybody. We really appreciate you listening. We really ap- appreciate your support, and uh, we'll be back soon. And in the meantime, go find something new to watch.